to my surprise, I was buzzed. I was stoned. I was high. I was in bliss. And later when I spoke with George Harrison, he said he got higher meditating than he ever did on drugs. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Consider it self-improvement that doesn't take itself too seriously. Thanks for being here. Hello, friends. Zachary Stockhill here with another hopefully exciting installment of Humans in Love. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me today. The conversation you're about to hear was originally broadcast on my old podcast, which, as you may recall, was called Travels in Music. I realize that some of you may have already heard this conversation, but I also realize that many more of you haven't. And this conversation was important because I think in some ways it represents the genesis of the podcast you're currently listening to, Humans in Love. In today's conversation, I chatted with Paul Saltzman, who is a documentary filmmaker, a very successful one at that. But in this conversation, I was more interested in what he was doing in India 50 years ago, actually 50 years ago this year, 2018. In 1968, Paul journeyed to India uh, looking for some kind of spiritual peace in the wake of a devastating breakup. And he found himself in a little town on the banks of the Ganges River called Rishikesh. And when he arrived there, he had no idea that at that very moment, the Beatles were meditating in Rishikesh. This is the main reason I wanted to talk to Paul. And this is one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. Uh, Paul is a very good guest. He tell, he's a great storyteller. And I really like the fact that he was very, very honest with me about how he felt during those years and what it was like spending time with the Beatles and, you know, the personal tumult that he was going through. He was very open and honest. And this conversation really got me thinking that this is the kind of conversations that I want to be having. This is the kind of guest I want to be interviewing. And so I really think back when I, when I recorded this interview back in 2016, this is where I wanted the podcast to go, hence the podcast you're currently listening to. I'm also hoping to get Paul back on this podcast in the future to discuss a new film he's making about the Beatles in India, but before then I thought it'd be good to, uh, to share this interview once again. A quick note before we get started, that if you're enjoying Humans in Love and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, Please take 21 to, I would say, 26 seconds out of your day. Go to iTunes or your podcast provider of choice. Be sure you subscribe to the show and leave a rating and a review. Without any further ado, here is my 2016 conversation with Mr. Paul Saltzman. The first thing I'd like to ask you about, really, is, is I mean, you and I share... Uh, a deep love and um, appreciation and respect, I think, for India. What what keeps you coming back to India over and over again over the past, you know, almost 50 years? Well, it's kind of my second favorite place on the planet, the first favorite being Bali. And, and part of the reason is that in both Bali and India, I find 
several things that I don't really find here. It doesn't mean it's not here, but I guess it's not in the same uh, stratosphere as there. So for me, India is filled with color. And I find North America fairly drab. We dress drab. We, um, you know, are, are, as I drive from one place to another, it's relatively drab. You get on the roads in India and it's splashes of magical colors. Of course, it's the saris and, and even the saris hanging outside, blowing in the wind with the sun coming through the back, lighting them up. It's it's everything about street life in Canada and North America because of the climate. We don't really live on the street. Shops aren't open. I mean, Kensington Market in Toronto I love because it's got a bit of that feeling. But, of course, in India, kind of everywhere you turn is an open market. And, and I love, there's a phrase that is important to me, and that's consciousness loves contrast. And in India, it's so filled with the contrast of life outdoors, colors, great creativity. India is a country that has enormous creativity. It doesn't mean we don't in North America, but it's very different. India is a culture of whatever it is, five or 10,000 years old, and North America is a culture of of five or 10,000 years old if we're talking indigenous people. But as a modern culture, North America is extremely young. And I think that impacts the emotionality in North America. I find people in India in general, these are generalizations. It's important to note that they're generalizations, but I find people in India generally much warmer, much friendlier, much kinder, and in Bali, I find the creativity and the kindness and gentleness even greater than in India. So that's what keeps me coming back to India. I mean, I've been there something like 56 times and I've traveled a lot and I've barely scratched the surface. You probably know that India has, depending on who you read, India has between five and 800 dialects. And it's really a nation of nations in a way. I've seen film footage of tribal people in India that you would absolutely swear you were in Southern Africa. Their skin is like Southern Africa. Their clothes in colors and designs are like you're in Southern Africa. It's really quite, you know, how can you ever get bored exploring India? Yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. Um, you can spend a lifetime exploring India, visiting India, and, and you only scratch the surface. It's, I remember when I, when I first landed in India, this was probably about eight years ago, and I remember so clearly, you, you speak about sight, um, color. For me, my first and strongest impression was, was smell. I remember stepping off the plane in Delhi, and it smelled just like, like, I remember thinking, this smells like the oldest place in the world. A very intriguing melange of, of you know, different you know, every matter of shit and, and curry and exhaust fumes. And it was from, from the beginning, I was hooked. I'm not sure if you had an experience like that, but from the beginning I was hooked. Right. Well, my, my experience of first landing in India was in Bombay, which was what it was called in 1965. And 
whatever it is, you know, past lifetime, I don't know. But my first time in India, I found I felt calmer. I felt my whole body relax into a place that I don't think I had ever consciously experienced. It did feel like a coming home on a visceral level, not on a mental level, on a visceral level. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And a lot of people would take that for, uh, would, would think that's ironic because Bombay is this massive bustling metropolis. But, uh, but no, I, I know what you mean. Well, let's, if you don't mind, let's go back to the mid-1960s. And I'm, I want to know more about what originally drew you to India. So, so what, what was the inspiration there? Why did you, as a 20-something young man in North America, what drew you to India? The truth of it was that I woke up one morning in Montreal. I was working for the National Film Board of Canada. And I had the shocking thought that there were parts of myself I didn't like. And I was a pretty successful young man. I'd been the star of my own TV show. I drove a sports car. I had no trouble um, with dating. But this I wasn't a very reflective person. And so waking up with this thought was a bit of a shock. And I asked myself, what do I do about that? And the answer I heard from within was, well, if you really want to look at yourself more closely, Paul, you might want to get away from the environment you grew up in, which were the exact words I heard inside. And I said, where do I go? And the answer within me was India, which was fascinating looking back because I had zero knowledge or interest in meditation, um, India, mysticism, yoga, none of that was on my radar. So it was just an inner guidance, which of course is the best kind of guidance. I know you've told this story before countless times, I'm sure, but I, I really think it's a great story. It's worth retelling. So how did you end up in Rishikesh then? So when I, before I left Canada, I was in love with my girlfriend and she was in love with me. And I don't think I knew how to tell her why I was going, but we both cried a lot in terms of just parting. And she said to me, if you go, I'll make myself stop loving you, which I did not hear. I blocked that one. I remembered it later in India. So as I got further away, you know, I felt more and more longing, as absence does often make the heart grow fonder. And I filmed, I worked on the film crew. There were three of us. We traveled from Bombay up the western coast into uh, Gujarat and then from Gujarat across to Kota in Rajasthan and then up to Delhi. And that's where the work finished. And I got my first mail and I got a letter from her, which I excitedly opened. And the first line was, Dear Paul, I've moved in with Henry. And, it, you know, the letter continued, but I don't remember a single word beyond that. And I was devastated. It was the worst heartbreak in my life uh, before, before or since. It was just devastating. And I was in agony. It was like there was a knife in my heart, which isn't an exaggeration of the pain I was feeling. And somebody I knew for three days, and I'd like to find him. I've tried to find him on the Internet, but there's a number of people named Al Bragg, B-R-A-G-G, -G, an American guy. And 
I don't know, I can't remember how I met him, but he said, why don't you try meditation for the heartbreak? I think it was obvious that I was suffering, so I don't remember what I said to Al, but he said, why don't you try meditation for the heartbreak? I said, I'll try anything. He said, I'm going to see the Maharishi uh, speak at New Delhi University tonight. Do you want to come? I said, yes. And we uh, got there a bit late, so we squeezed in at the back of this auditorium that was jam-packed, and the Maharishi was speaking. And he said, he said, uh, and I only remember these words of what he said, you know, we, we recall that which is critical to us often, or that which is traumatic often, and, or that which is joyful often. But anyway, he said these words exactly, he said, among in this long you know, talk he gave, I don't know how long it was, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, I forget. But he said, meditation takes you beneath and below your daily worries and concerns to a place of inner rejuvenation from which you come back renewed and refreshed. And I thought, that's what I need. And um, being relatively independent, but I think it was also that same inner, inner guidance system I didn't go up to anyone there in authority and say, I'd like to learn meditation, because they would have said our office is wherever it was in Delhi and come and we'll teach you. I just went up and talked to a couple of the other people on stage who were a group of Westerners on their way to the ashram with the Maharishi to do a TM course. And they said they were going to the ashram in Rishikesh. So I knew it was in Rishikesh. So a couple of days later, I just took a train to Rishikesh. I didn't you know, being in pain, um, I wasn't, well, I just wasn't aware that the train didn't stop in Rishikesh until I saw it go by the windows. Literally, I look out and there's the word Rishikesh on the tracks announcing the town coming into and the train doesn't stop. So I got off at the next stop, which was Dehradun, and I took a taxi back and I asked the taxi driver where the Maharishi's ashram was thinking, you know, he'll know. And he said that most of the ashrams were on the other side of the river. And so I took a boat across for, I think, five rupees. And I asked the boatman, where is the Maharishi's ashram? And he said, in kind of broken English, he said, Maharishi ashram that way. And he pointed down river. I didn't really know that Rishikesh is a center of ashrams and retreat centers and all of that. And so I walked down the river and I didn't know where the ashram was. And I was just walking on the boulders and rocks of the riverbank. And I, I was looking around for the ashram and I looked to my left and I saw a sign, which was a hand painted sign. You know, one of those signs, that's a little piece of wood that's cut. So the end is like a point, like an arrow pointing. Yeah. And it, this piece of wood was nailed to a tree and the arrow was pointing up to the sky and it said ashram. <laughs> <laughs> so you know i don't know if the gods conjured that sign for me or if it guided a lot of people but at any rate uh there was a pathway and i went up the pathway and the cliff was about 150 feet and the pathway wound back and forth and i came out at the top of the cliff and there was a kind of path and dirt road and uh you know another 100 yards and there was the gate to the to an ashram and um, that's how I got to be there. And you had no idea at this point that the most famous rock and roll band in the world was behind that gate. No, I didn't. Um, 
there when I got to the gate, there was a, a chokidar or watchman who was dressed in a sort of slightly tattered sort of uniform. And I spoke to him and he didn't speak English. So he made a motion and he went to get someone. And a little while later, Raghavendra, a very wonderful, wonderful man who played a very important part in my life, came down and he spoke English. He was, I believe, the Maharishi's number three. The Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was the the leader of the movement and the ashram. And then there was a number two who was really a brahmacharya, like a religious devotee. And Raghavendra, who had been a lawyer and left law to work with the Maharishi, to follow the Maharishi, to study the Maharishi, he was really in charge of running the place. And he came down and uh, he spoke perfect English. And I said, I've come to earn meditation. I remember every word. And he said, I'm sorry, the ashram is closed because the Beatles and their wives are here and we're doing a course for TM teachers. And I said, you have to teach me. And I told him about my knife in the heart, the agony, the heartbreak. And he said that he would go and ask the Maharishi and that he would send me a, send me a cup of chai. And he said, I can't come back for two or three hours. So he went away and about... 20 minutes later, a, a server came down with a sort of incongruous sort of English tea set of white crockery with chai and milk, hot, hot milk and sugar and a teacup, you know, a white teacup and saucer. And I poured myself a cup of chai and I sat down and leaned up against the gate, which was locked. And I waited and he came back two or three hours later. And he said, I'm sorry, the Maharishi says not at the present time. And I said, can I wait? And he was a little taken aback and I didn't know what to do. You know, the fact that the Beatles were there was not good news. I was a fan. Their music had already been life changing for me. I saw them live in Toronto in 1964 at Maple Leaf Gardens. And it was the most electric, uh, energizing stunning event and I happened to have found my way to the original Woodstock which was wonderful but that Beatles concert probably rates number one in my life of rock and roll concerts um, the first Woodstock probably rates second with me if I had to rate it and third would be Janis Joplin at the O'Keefe Center back then uh, holding her bottle of scotch and drinking on stage and that didn't lead to a very good end of course no. So I waited, and I waited outside for eight days. I slept in a tent. Raghavendra was really wonderful. Um, he said he would send me their simple vegetarian meals, were his words. And so I waited, and he fed me. Meals would come down, and I ate, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And eight days later, he said, okay, come on in. And he taught me meditation, which took three, four minutes. And um, so that was that part of the sort of journey. And you found it helpful right away. Yeah, well, he, he gave me a mantra and he did it without any hoopla. You know, I think, I think there tends to be a lot of hoopla around some of these things. And um, he gave me a mantra and he said, how to use it. He said, it's a, in my case, it was one word 
and he said, you just say it inside. You can say it out loud or silently, but I prefer to say it silently. He said, you can meditate with your eyes open or your eyes closed. And I felt better closing my eyes so I could be more focused. And he said, you just say it like a musical note. You drop it like a pebble in the water. And as the note fades, like the ripples of the water fading out and disappearing, when you notice that the mantra is gone, you repeat it. You drop it again into your consciousness as a sound. And he said, try it. And I tried it for a minute or two. And he said, what are you experiencing? And I said, well, my knees are hurting because I'd never sat cross-legged in my life, really. Was right. probably, probably not since I had been a child, I'm sure, as a child. But as an adult, I'd not sat cross-legged. So my knees were hurting. And a dog barked outside. And I said, I'm a little distracted by the dog. And Raghvendra said, that's fine. When you get distracted, simply don't wrestle with it. If you wrestle with it, you're out of the meditation. He said, when you find that you're getting distracted, just choose to go back to your mantra and follow that sound. And then he said, you're now welcome to spend your days in the ashram and taking, take your meals with us, were his exact words. But we don't have any extra beds, so you'll have to stay in the tent. I said, great, thank you. And he left. And I did a half an hour meditation and it was an absolute miracle. And remember, I knew nothing about this stuff. I had no belief system. I just, I'm just desperate for a tool to deal with the agony. And I finished meditating a half an hour later, and I opened my eyes, and the knife in the heart was gone, gone. I was in a state of bliss. I was still... I still had the heartbreak in the sense that I still loved somebody who didn't want me. And it really took a long time to get over that. But the agony, the devastating agony was simply gone in a 30 minute meditation. And I walked outside and I was stoned. To my surprise, I was buzzed. I was stoned. I was high. I was in bliss. And later when I spoke with George Harrison, he said, he got higher meditating than he ever did on drugs. And I had done drugs too, you know, marijuana, hashish, a little mescaline, LSD, all of which for me was an exploration of consciousness or joy or both. To me, it was never, um, it was never to blot myself out. It was actually the other way around for me. And I actually never took LSD or any other psychotropic without a friendly pharmacologist in Toronto, actually lab testing it for me. So I would never take anything that was tainted. I would always take the pure psychotropic. Nice to have a friend who's a pharmacologist. And Certainly. So, yeah, I went out and I was stoned. I was buzzed and, and I started walking around the ashram. And again, the Beatles were not even in my consciousness. They were not even in my mind. These other matters were so much more important. The heartbreak, the healing being in joy. I was just so relieved to not be in agony. I was in joy. And very interesting, something that what replaced the heartbreak in, in, the, in the sort of deepest sense was I found that my love for my girlfriend was very present. And the form it took was, well, if she's happier with Henry than with me, well, that's good then. And I meant it. If she's happier with Henry than with me, my love for her was uh, authentic. 
And if you truly love somebody, you know, there's that wonderful expression, if you love if you love them, set them free. Well, set them free is an attitude of mind where you're not trying to hold on and possess and control. And in that moment of coming out of the meditation and being in bliss, I really felt deep into my heart that I hope she's happy with Henry because she clearly was looking for something other than Paul in that moment. So tell me about your first encounter actually meeting the Beatles in the ashram. I was walking through the ashram. As I said, I wasn't thinking of them. I was looking around. There were beautiful parakeets in the trees and a few monkeys and the river was below. I could hear and it was quiet and idyllic. And I um, looked over at one point to my right and about, oh, I don't know, a hundred feet away, I saw John Lennon sitting at a table and McCartney, who was sort of across from Lennon and sort of had his back to me, I could see him. And I could see there were other people, but they were kind of hidden by the trees. And I just, um, I just went over and, and I didn't go over with excitement. It was very interesting. I was in an altered state and that altered state was such that I didn't think, oh my God, it's the Beatles. I didn't think, wow, John Lennon. I just, found myself heading their way with a state of sort of detached bliss. And um, I went over and after they kind of realized somebody was standing there, and when I got to the table, there were the four Beatles and, you know, Maureen Ringo's first wife, Patty George's first wife, Cynthia John's first wife, Jane Asher was with Paul, she was there. Mia Farrow was at the table, Donovan, Mike Love of the Beach Boys, and Mal Evans, their roadie. And they realized somebody was standing there. I didn't want to interrupt him. And John looked up at me and very calmly, I just said, may I join you? And he said, sure, mate, pull up a chair. And Paul turned to me and said, come and sit here. And he pulled a chair in next to him. And that's how I met them. And then I basically spent a week uh meditating, hanging out with them, sleeping in the tent, eating eating inside the ashram. And then I came back to Canada to see if my girlfriend and I could get back together. And um, she and Henry hadn't lasted long. They'd lived together for two or three weeks, and she realized that that it was not what she wanted and that she loved me. But we were both too young and too shell-shocked she shell-shocked with my leaving and moving in with Henry and Henry turning out not to be what he seemed to be. And that was painful and me being heartbroken and coming back. And I came back to see if we could get together. And neither of us knew how to actually just be with each other. We couldn't move through the initial pain when I returned. Yeah, that's always, always very tricky. I have some experience of that, um, breaking up and getting back together. It's, um, that's always tricky. Yes. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. But, you know, if we're mature enough and if we are, you know, managed to be in our hearts as opposed to in our heads, it can all be done. Certainly. Absolutely. If you don't mind, I'd like to go back um, just to get a better sense of what it was like for you to, to, you know, be able to spend time and hang out with the Beatles a little bit. What are, what are the, the clearest memories that stand out from that week in Rishikesh? Well, the two, the two most important moments for me in the sense of 
Well, I, I suppose one thing is the meditation because I was finding a new relationship with my inner self. So in a sense, the most important thing that happened that week was just being in a quiet, protected, not rushy, uh, serene environment in which meditation and, and the inner journey was the focus. And so in that environment, meditating and being in connection with my inner self, my soul, my heart, um, that was very, very nurturing and set a new course in my life. So I can say that that time in Rishikesh was profoundly life-changing for me, partly because I chose to continue the exploration of the relationship within self and with divine energy. Um, I didn't, in terms of the transcendental meditation, I, I, I learned before I ever got in the gate that the Maharishi wasn't really my cup of tea. And that's okay because, you know, what he did in bringing and popularizing this form of meditation, what he did for the world was magnificent. You know, you get around great leaders who are themselves perhaps pure. I don't know, you know, the falling out they had with the Beatles. I was gone, so I don't know what really happened. Um, I've read the literature, but, you know, in terms of him having an ashram and teaching that form of meditation and Raghavendra opening the door for me, that for that I'm eternally grateful. But I, you know, I realized that that he wasn't my cup of tea. I wasn't looking for a guru. I think where John Lennon may have gotten into difficulty was in part that he seemed to be, from what I've read, he was looking for the meaning of life. And he was maybe looking for a father figure in the sense that he had had an absentee father and that had been very painful for him and an absentee mother and that had been very painful for him. Um, but for me, I was looking for a tool. I was looking for a giant aspirin, <laughs> a giant, a giant relief for the pain. And I got it. I got it in spades in very short order. Yeah, I waited eight days and then it took five minutes and another 30 minutes. And I was in on a different path in my life. You know, in terms of the Beatles, um, it was really quite remarkable because within one minute of sitting down with them. I literally never thought of them as the Beatles again for the next week. I hung out with them. We sat around. They, they, they really did. All of them really took me into their group of who I call in my books, the famous folks who were there. Um, you know, and so I had lovely connections with John, Paul, George, and Ringo more so than with any of the other people there, uh, in the famous folks. And, um, and they were great. They were playful with me. They were funny. They were welcoming. They were kind. And, um, you know, I saw them taking pictures of each other, like a family outing with their high end Nikons. And I had my cheapest possible Pentax cause I hadn't had money. And my Pentax was in my backpack because I thought I was going to travel the world for a while. And, um, and, you know, after a few days of seeing them take pictures and being just at ease, I asked each of them individually. And it really wasn't about 
hey, Beatles, can I take your picture? It was really just having the respect of asking people individually so they would be comfortable saying no. So I asked each of them individually, do you mind if I take pictures? Each of them said, oh, go right ahead. And because I wasn't thinking of them as the Beatles, literally, literally never entered my mind after the first one minute of sitting with them, as much as it may sound like a cliche, it really was profoundly true that they were just John, Paul, George, and Ringo, just like Rog Vendra was Rog Vendra and the other people were themselves. And I didn't think of them to the point that I could have taken hundreds of pictures and I took 54 pictures with anyone famous in them. Um, and I only took out my camera twice in the week. Literally, I just didn't think about it. And I also didn't think, and, and we were buddies for a week. They were very warm and playful and all of the rest and profound with me. Um, George and John were both profound with me and Ringo and, and, and Paul were playful and warm and, Ringo asked me to shoot some film for him and taught me how to use his 16 millimeter wind up Bolio camera and all that kind of stuff. But I really, I didn't even think of asking for an autograph. The thought wasn't in my brain and I didn't even think of getting my picture with them. And I could have had fun, playful, joking or candid photos of me with them. Literally the thought didn't enter my mind. It wasn't it to not to not to overemphasize this. It wasn't like I thought of it and thought, no, I better not or no, I ought not to. I literally never even thought of it. Somebody said to me the other day, did you realize it was a historic moment? No, I was just hanging out with these people. Going back to something you said earlier, you said that John and George were profound with you. What what did you mean by that? Well, we would sit, the table that I met them at was kind of a long table, maybe 12 feet long, uh, out under a, a trestle that had vines on it for shade, quite near the edge of the cliff overlooking the Ganges. And um, that's where we would hang out. That's where they would hang out when they weren't meditating or when they weren't um, being alone or when they weren't getting sort of private instruction from the Maharishi, the, the, the famous folks, but especially the Beatles and their wives would meet with the Maharishi without the bigger group. The 60 people on the meditation course, we barely saw them, saw them for meals. And then they were either having instruction or meditating for long hours. And, um, so we, we would hang out at the table by the cliff and, and one day we were sitting around and, Everyone got up to leave except me and John, and we were just sitting there, and I was finishing a cup of chai, and he was writing in his notebook. Interesting, it was the only time I ever saw him wearing those famous glasses from the British Health Service that he wore, those famous little round glasses that everyone then started to, um, or many people started to wear. And he finished writing and he closed his book up and he looked up at me and he said, in, a, in just a curious and personal way, he said, so how come you're here? And it was very kind. It wasn't like, what are you doing here? It was, we were already buddies for a week. He said, so how come you're here? And I, I, I told him briefly, you know, heartbreak, meditation, miracle. Um, and he said in a very thoughtful way, he kind of looked off into the distance and he said, Yes, love can really can be really hard us on us sometimes, can't it? And I said, yes, yes. And he said, he paused again and he looked away and he said, 
But you know, Paul, the really great thing about love is you always get another chance. And that was very soothing for me to hear because it's a perspective that I didn't have when I was still longing for someone who presumably was living with Henry. So that was a very important, profound moment for me and a very kind moment of John and I just, you know, he was 26, I was 24, we were babies, right? You know, but that was a very kind and wise thing to share with me. And what were your impressions of George generally? George, interesting, George was the quietest, you know, that cliche or that that, that part of the, the, the lore that he was the quiet one. George was the quietest one in a group, but one day a bunch of us were sitting there and everyone got up to leave and George and I were still finishing our tea and we were sitting opposite each other. And And in the time that I was there, the week I was with them, and there was a lot of hours hanging out. But the week I was with them, I never heard any shop talk. I never heard them talk about music or business or the outside world. The talk was always about meditation, the clothes they were having made by a tailor who would come up from the town below that you see in the pictures I took, the formal picture setup I took that the Maharishi sort of, it was his class photo is my kind of way of putting it. And they talked about India and they talked about the food and and Jane Asher was wanting to see the Taj Mahal. So she and Paul were talking about leaving early. Um, so none of that was shop talk. But as I'm sitting there opposite George, for whatever reason, and I think it was an inspired moment, again, one's inner self really guiding if we want to listen to our inner self. And that guidance system is always available to us, even if we want to ignore it for a lifetime or lifetimes or long periods. But anyway, I I just said to him, I love the way you brought the sitar into, into your music in Norwegian wood. It's very beautiful. And he just lit up. started telling me about how he got interested in the sitar and it was on the set of help and he picked it up during a break in the filming and he and he got turned on by it and then Patty gave him a uh, a record of Ravi Shankar and Ravi Shankar was coming to perform in London and he met him and then he studied off and on with him for six months over the next couple of years in in Bombay going to Bombay to study with Ravi Shankar and so he just talked about it with with love and then he said I was just going to go practice do you want to come and I said lovely didn't even think of getting my camera and it's the one photo in my head that I would love to be able to export because it's a very beautiful photo of George and in the sense that we went to his small meditation room so the room is maybe 10 feet by 6 feet 
He sits down cross-legged towards the center of the room with his sitar. I sit down cross-legged and lean up against the wall opposite him. So our knees are maybe a foot or two apart. And he starts to play and I just closed my eyes and I really have no idea how long he played for. It was one of those experiences where time stops. And I don't know if he played for 10 minutes or 30 minutes, but as the last note faded out and I was, I was just on the music. I was with the music. I was gone. I was just part of the music was my experience. And then I opened my eyes slowly when it was obvious that that the resonating of the sitar was dying out and gone. And I opened my eyes and I was stoned. I was buzzed. It's like having a joint. It was just an exquisite feeling of, and you know, sometimes when you allow yourself to be in a place of love with another person or with yourself, sometimes you can see the energy in the room. And I opened my eyes and I could see the energy in the room and George was sitting smiling and we started talking. We just had a conversation and he was 24 and I was 24 and we started talking about life. And that's when he said to me, he got higher meditating than he ever did on drugs. And I knew what he meant because I had just experienced it. You know, the words are clear, but the experience was vivid. And then he said something to me, and I only remember the two things, these two things. I, I kept a diary till the day I arrived outside the ashram, and for some strange reason, I stopped keeping a diary, which would have been nice to have now. But what I remember with crystal clarity was he said something to me that, that impacted my whole life. And he was a man of such kind humility. Um... And humility is not making yourself small. Oh, gee, shucks. No, thanks. No. Oh, gee, shucks. That's not humility. Humility is is realizing your size in the universe. And George was a man of kind heart and gentle soul and real humility and clearly a bright, remarkable, creative fellow. But he said to me with this kind humility, he just sharing, he said this, these sentences, he said, and we're just talking about life. There wasn't a motivation for where this came out, except we're sharing, we're talking about our lives. And he said, like, we're the Beatles after all, aren't we? We have all the money you could ever dream of. We have all the fame you could ever wish for, but it isn't love. It isn't health. It isn't peace inside, is it? And that was something I've held in my heart since that day. And I, I've written about it. And I, when I talk to somebody like yourself, I, I always find a way to say that because it's a gift he gave me that I'm passing on to others. That's some pretty profound insight from a 24-year-old, really, you know, look, look, looking back. Totally. Totally. 24-year-old superstar. How did... You know, imagine the depth of his maturity to actually know that, but not only know it, to feel it and live it. I've, I've got just a couple more questions for you. I could talk to you about this stuff all day. I promise I'll, I'll let you go soon. But one question I was, uh, one thing I'm curious about as a as a Beatles fan, I guess, um, form, like prim- primarily, is that any Beatles fan knows two things about their experience in India. One was that they wrote most of the White Album there. And the second thing is that it kind of, a lot of people argue that it, it hastened the breakup of the band in some ways. It sort of fractured the band. Being around them for a week, did you get any sense that they were 
at least in the early stages of, of growing apart and eventually breaking up? No, not at all. Um, not at all, at all, at all. They were like four brothers. They were very close and playful and, and, and obviously they were like four brothers. And interestingly enough, the wives and Jane Asher, the girlfriend, in other words, the prime women in their life, they were more or less close with them, pending who we're talking about. You could see that John and Cynthia were not connecting. You know, you could see that Ringo and Maureen were like a, kind of an old, comfortable married couple. You could see that George and Patty were very much in a place of loving. Um, and um, Paul and Jane were also uh, in a place of, of connection with each other. Um, but you, but it was easy to see that the four brothers were the core group and their partners were not in the inner circle. And I don't mean that negatively. You know, I guess their shared life experiences, their shared creativity, their bonding was simply such that they were like four brothers. They were family and their partners were family, but kind of like just a slight concentric circle out. So, no, there was no sign of anything like that. I mean, later, you know, reading the literature, one learns that John had already met Yoko. He had fallen in love with her. Apparently he had wanted to take her to the ashram instead of his wife. And he couldn't figure out how to do that. And, you know, it's been written that he thought maybe he could take both of them to the ashram. And then he realized that was a pretty dumb idea. <laughs> yeah. So, the, you know, and again, I've only read that he was writing to Yoko and she to him. She was writing to him at, you know, post-restant in Swarg Ashram, Rishikesh, India. And he would go down or send Mal, I suppose, go down to the post office to get letters from her and wrote back. So, you know, Cynthia was trying to put their marriage back on track without her, without knowing that John was gone already. John was already, you know... And so he was pretty chilly with her. Um, you know, I think it's well known that John wasn't very kind to the women in his life, in his early life. And he wrote about it, of course. I used to be mean to my woman and beat her and keep her away from the things that she loved, right? That's his line. It's getting better all the time. Yep, it's getting better all the time. So, no, there was no sign at all of anything other than a very close and creative relationship and they of the of the 30 songs on the white album i think there's 30 17 of them were written at the ashram and and while some of the historians said that they wrote 22 or 23 songs at the ashram because the escher tapes have 22 or 23 or 24 i forget how much that's not accurate um they wrote 48 songs at the ashram and the way i know that is that Dennis O'Dell, who was the head of Apple Films, was at the ashram. He actually arrived the day I left. And um, he and I met many years later, and I said to him, how many songs did they write at the ashram? And he said, 48. And I said, how do you know? He said, well, I was with John and George when they came back, and I asked them, how many songs did you write at the ashram, all of you? And they said, 48. There's there's so much more that I wanted to ask you about Woodstock and your work in the civil rights movement and your documentary films. Um, it would be fantastic to have you back sometime. But sure. before I let before I let you go, um, tell me about your Beatles tour. Oh well, 
you know, what happened was I took these pictures and, and I put them away. I did one article. McLean's magazine wanted to do a cover story and wanted the pictures because no one was coming out of the ashram with pictures. 20 or 30 press people arrived outside the gate every day I was waiting outside. Camera people, news crews, still photographers, writers from literally all over the world. And they wanted to get in the ashram and know the ashram's closed and the Maharishi would come out and give a press conference every day. But so my pictures were were uh, rare and I was broke and I needed to make some money and rent a flat because I just gotten back. And I was so blown away by the meditation that I literally wanted to tell people, hey, there's this great thing, meditation. I use a very different form of meditation today, and I have used a very different form for 20 years. You know, meditation's a tool, and and there are many versions of that tool. But at any rate, so I did that cover story for McLean's and um, told people about meditation and got paid. And then I put the pictures away, and I literally forgot about them for 32 years. I really literally forgot. I didn't even tell my best friends, oh, I spent a week with the Beatles in India. It was just a very private, deep, life-changing experience. And then I found the pictures. My daughter reminded me of a childhood story, found them, took them out, was going to England with my daughter, got in touch with Stephen Maycock, who was the curator for rock and roll memorabilia at Sotheby's Auction House, was considered about the best authority in the world on this stuff. And I took Duke dupes and I took them to say, you know, are they worth anything and what can I do with them? And he was stunned. He said this wonderful line after looking at the 54 pictures, he said, we see everything for moments like this. Some of these are the best intimate shots we've ever seen of them. What do you want to do with them? You know, and we talked about that. And later I did my first book and he wrote the introduction for it to put them in historical perspective. And I did gallery shows all over the world. I still do sometimes with my photographs and and get invited once in a while to to do presentations. And I've heard 50, 60, 70 times the same phrase. People come up to me and, and 50 or 60 or 70 times people have said, I've always wanted to go to India, because it, but it scares me. I've always wanted to go to India, but it scares me. And I would say each time, why does it scare you? And we'd talk about it. And I'd simply share my experiences. And one day a guy who was in his 20s said, after this kind of a conversation, he said, would you ever take anyone? And I thought, well, that's a very nice idea. I love India. So I've taken two small tour groups. I designed the tour and I lead the tour. I've got a travel agency that really does all the, all the arrangements so that I don't have to do that and uh, takes care of all the arrangements. So I took 22 people in 2013, I took 12 people in 2014, and I'm gonna take another small group this fall. And um, it's really to share my joy of India, really is, and to share the inner and the outer journey with anyone who wants to talk about the inner journey. Most people don't, but I don't push it, but there's always conversations that are profound on the trip. and. Um, I take people from the very deep south. We fly into Trivandrum in Kerala, which is paradise. Um, most people don't know because they have all these conceptions about India and misconceptions. It's not. It's true about poverty. It's true about crowded cities. It's true about the darker side of people, which we have 
here in Canada and the States too. Um, but what they don't know about India is it's mostly empty. It's 80% agrarian. You can go for miles and miles and miles and see farmland and the occasional farmer. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful country and um, with its problems. But we do a really joyful journey from South India all the way up to the what's now called the Beatles Ashram in Rishikesh, which they've just opened after 40 years of it being closed. We had to sort of bribe our way in each time I took a group. But now you can just go and I, I presume there's an entrance fee and they've cleaned it up and so on. So, yeah, it's just a wonderful journey. And where can people learn more about that? Um, the easy way is just to go to my website, thebeetlesinindia.com, uh, thebeetlesinindia.com, and they can email me from there and I can send the itinerary. Great, great. Well, Paul Saltzman, it was an absolute joy talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Mr. Paul Saltzman. Again, probably one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. He's a, um, he's a pretty interesting human being with, uh, with a lot of great stories to share. And just a reminder that I'm trying to get Paul back on this show at some point in the very near future to talk about his new film that he's making about the Beatles in India. So be sure you subscribe to Humans in Love on iTunes or your podcast provider of choice. And uh, be sure to leave a rating and a review while you're at it. A reminder before I let you go also that you can go to humansinlove.com to learn more about everything we talked about in today's episode, uh, to connect with me through email, to sign up for my mailing list, and uh, everything you've ever wanted to know about me and this podcast, you can find at humansinlove.com. Thank you for listening, my friends, and please remember before I let you go that life is short, so I really hope you enjoy today, you take a minute to be present and uh, enjoy your time with friends and family and enjoy this ride we call life. I'll talk to you again next Tuesday.